0: So last year on the 4th, I talked about interdependence. This year, I thought I would talk about freedom. So as I begin, I'd like to ask a few of you to say, what do you think of when you hear freedom? Or what does freedom mean to you? Yes, having wings. having wings makes me think of Tom Jeff's book, Wings to Awakening. <laughs> yeah. Well, could you
1: could you um, take the microphone? Uh. Openness and spaciousness.
2: It reminds me of freedom to choose. Mm. Peace.
0: Peace. Anything else? Uh
2: uh-huh. huh. <coughs> Joyful renunciation. Mm-hmm. I think of freedom from things that um, hold me down or or attachments or clinging. So I think of it as freedom from as opposed to freedom to. Mm -hmm.
0: Anything else? Okay, thank you. Well tomorrow as you know we celebrate the birth of the nation that is considered to be the freest on earth. Hmm. <laughs> is it? <laughs> in the 1980s, I had the opportunity a couple of times to visit the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. And some people there, not all, of course, by any means, but some people said, oh, yeah, you all are free to be homeless, free to starve, free to not have medical care. (laughs) Well, it was (laughs) thought-provoking. Yeah. So we have this Bill of Rights that lists several freedoms, rights, that we cherish in this country, that, that we hold as very dear. And so I'd like to explore maybe three of them and use our Buddhist practice to look at them. The first is freedom of speech or freedom of the press. That's a very big one and has frequently been in the news recently, right? A couple things come to my mind. About uh, ten days ago, I heard Salman Rushdie uh, interviewed on Bill Moyers, his series on faith and reason. Very, very interesting, very well-spoken man. And, of course, very, um, it feels greatly the importance of free speech. And, of course, you know, he was in hiding for a decade because of his book, which was considered heretical in the Muslim world. And then I thought of the cartoon that was printed in the Danish newspaper just a short while ago that, um, you know, drew great ire from the Muslim world and great defense from Western democracies that cried free speech. So we could look at speech from our Buddhist practice perspective. Speech um, is the third or the fourth precept, depending on who's making the list, <laughs> to refrain from false speech. Right speech is also part of the Eightfold Path. And in Thich Han's precepts, there are three or four, I think, pertaining to speech. So it's quite an important concept in our Buddhist practice. <clears throat> And the Buddha talked about speech as being not, not just refraining from false speech, but he suggested no idle speech, no gossip, and that our speech should be gentle and kind and helpful and truthful and be timely. <laughs> so that even if what we're saying is true, and could be helpful um, if the timing isn't right. It's not appropriate. So he gives us lots of ways to think about speech and to expand the concept of speech um, in many, many terms more than just the freedom of speech. Another one that, that Americans often hold dear is the right to bear arms. Now, some people think that's out of date. Others think it's quite important, that that's a basic right that we hold in this country, that we have the right to defend ourselves. Again, if we look at it from our Buddhist practice perspective, The basic underpinning of sila in Buddhist practice is non-harming, to cause no harm. The first precept is that of no killing, not taking life. And in right livelihood, which is part of the Eightfold Path, there's the instruction that it's not right livelihood to deal in weapons, to deal in arms. Again, a different perspective, a very different way of looking at this right. The pursuit of happiness, we say that we have the inalienable inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. This is very similar to our practice, right? The Dalai Lama says everyone wants to be happy. And it's sort of a basic tenet of Buddhist practice that we all want to be happy. We sometimes have very misguided ways of trying to make ourselves happy. But we do accept that that everyone wants to be happy. It seems sometimes that People think that the right to accumulate will bring happiness. Accumulating, you know, anything, (laughs) things, ideas, um, anything, that it's the accumulation that will bring us happiness more and more, bigger and better. And when we look at our Buddhist practice, just as you've suggested, we see, the suggestion of the joy of renunciation the freedom from (laughs) all these things letting go letting go simplifying our life over my years of practice my life has greatly simplified and it feels so much freer it's really much lighter I have so much less to protect (laughs) to defend to worry about you know I often go away and leave my door open some people of course think I'm crazy I'm inviting trouble Um, for me it's, it's a freedom it's a great freedom that I don't have to lock everything up I don't have all this stuff to to protect. Sometimes what looks like bondage is really freedom and vice versa. Sometimes what looks like freedom can really be bondage. Ajahn Chah, a very well-known Thai master this is one of my favorite quotes, that if we let go a little bit, we'll have a little happiness or a little freedom. If we let go a lot, we'll have a lot of happiness or a lot of freedom. And if we let go completely, we'll have complete happiness or complete freedom. I think of that a lot. So, what what do we let go of? What can we let go of? Of course, there are many things, but one thing that comes to mind is our preferences. Most of us have many, many, many preferences. And there's a very well-known Zen saying that um, the way is not difficult, for those with no preferences. Many people, when, when hearing that, think, number one, it's an impossibility, and number two, how boring <laughs> to let go of preferences. But I think there's a great deal of wisdom that the way is not difficult for those with no preference, or we could say with fewer preferences. In this country we have many, many choices. Sometimes I think some of us think too many choices. And sometimes people from developing countries when they come here are totally overwhelmed with the number of choices that we have in in almost all arenas. Sometimes I think it would be easier if, if we went back to, you know, you can have this or this. (laughs) instead of which one of 500, whether it's a health care plan or a dress or whatever. And do those choices really give us freedom? Or are they bondage? Sometimes I find they're really bondage. And then there's ideas and views that we can let go of. We often hold on to our ideas, our ideas and our views so tightly. I've certainly experienced that. They often define us. We know who we are by what we think or the views that we hold. They can be political, they can be religious, they can be educational, they can be any number of things, right? Any idea, any view that we have can define us. And sometimes it's harder to let go of our ideas and our views than lots of other things. But they also bind us, right? They also constrict us. If we have a certain view of ourselves, then often it's very hard to step outside of that. Or if we hold a certain view about anything, it can be very difficult to let go of that. And wars (laughs) are started over different views, different ideas. right? So it's not to say that we shouldn't have any ideas or any views. In Buddhist practice, we hold some ideas about compassion, uh, about wisdom, about non-harming, you know, the precepts, the Eightfold Path, etc. But the important thing is to hold those views lightly. So that, like the Dalai Lama says, if science were to prove Buddhism wrong, then Buddhism should change. That's a pretty radical statement. There are not too many religions or wisdom traditions that say that, right? I think that's, I think that's quite remarkable and quite wonderful. Actually, the Tao, the Tao Te Ching says something similar. The mark of a moderate man is freedom from his own ideas, tolerant like the sky, all pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain, supple like a tree in the wind. He has no destination in view and makes use of anything life happens to bring his way. Nothing is impossible for him because he has let go. He can care for the people's welfare as a mother cares for her child. So when we let go, we can have greater freedom. There's also a wonderful book by Stephen Batchelor, Buddhism Without Beliefs. It's a very, very small book, but a very wonderful book. It's the same idea, holding our ideas and views very lightly, not being too attached to them so they don't weigh us down. Another thing we can learn to let go of is this incredibly strong sense of self that most of us carry around. This along with ideas and views I think are the hardest things to let go of. We have this sense of a separate self that we often consider so important and so valuable and that must be defended. right? we see that there's a me and there's a you. (laughs) There's a a me and there's whatever other object. And of course, just in the saying, that sets up not only a duality, but you can hear in it the sense of defense. If there's a me and there's a you, then I have to defend me and you have to defend you. And that's again how conflict... Wars get started, right? If instead we see that we are all a part of this life, that we're all a part of the tapestry of life, we're all that life is a process and we're a part of that process like Indra's net. We're all a jewel in Indra's net. We're all connected and each gem shines brightly, each one as valuable as any other and as necessary. We're all a part of this play or this dance of life. And when we see that, rather than the separateness, then there's nothing to defend, right? And if there's nothing to defend, that's freedom. I recently read a very wonderful book by um, Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho was Ajahn uh, Amaro's teacher, an American. (coughs) who spent many years in Thailand and now is in England. And when Ajahn Amaro was here a couple weeks ago, he brought some of his books. And I love his writings. This one was called Intuitive Awareness. And he talks about how awareness, freedom, is right here, right now, as near as our breath. It's not somewhere down the road. It's not something we aspire to at a later time, but it's right here, right now. In Zen, there's the understanding that we are all already awake, already enlightened. And we sit zazen, or meditation, to express that awakeness, to express that enlightenment. That's that same idea, that it's right here, right now. And that may seem like a koan, that may seem like a puzzle, but it's true. That awareness, that ability to be aware, that ability to notice, is all that we can take refuge in, that's really all we have. Everything else can be taken away. And that's what we mean when we take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the fact that the Buddha awakened and that we too have the ability to awake, to be aware. so, we talk about letting go. How do we do that? (laughs) How do we let go? Simple, but not so easy. Um, It's often said, and it's been my experience, that letting go is not a matter of will. I can't will myself to let go. Letting go is a process. Sometimes it's called grace what we can do is see our attachments see where we're caught see where we're clinging and over time then that attachment loosens that that bond loosens and at some point we realize oh i've let i've let go of that so we can incline ourselves incline the mind to letting go but it's not something that we can with our ego or with our will, create. However, we can breathe, (laughs) relax, notice how much we want to be in control, and where we can let go of that control, at least to the best of our ability. We can see how attached we are to our ideas and our views, to this sense of who I am, to this ego, this person that I call Brigitte. And with that scene over and over and over and over again, in time, as I say, the bond does lessen. It does relax. Letting go does happen, but I can't will it, I can't make it, because that's just control again. in in Joseph Goldstein's book uh, The Experience of Insight he quotes Master Wei Wu Wei as saying what is what we are looking for is what is looking or I've heard it said that which we are seeking is what is causing us to seek or he also says, "There's only one question, and the asking is the answer." I'd like to read this paragraph from Jack Cornfield in his book *A Pack with Heart*. The sorrows created by the mind can be untangled. We can release our sorrows and open to that great song which is beyond all stories, to the Dharma that is timeless. We can move through life fulfilling our part, yet somehow free in the midst of it all. When the stories of our life no longer bind us, we discover within them something greater. We discover that within the very limitation of form, of our maleness and femaleness, of our parenthood and our childhood, of gravity on the earth and the changing of the seasons, is the freedom and harmony we have sought for so long. Our individual life Is an expression of the whole mystery. And in it we can rest in the center of the movement, the center of all worlds. And that's the truth. (laughs) And the truth shall set us free. So we have a few minutes. Um, I'd like to invite your comments, your thoughts about freedom. Mm -hmm. Do we have the mic?
1: Before you read that quote from uh, Jack Cornfield, you mentioned something else that was uh, a little obscure, and I was wondering if you could speak a little more on that. I mean, what do you mean when uh, the question? There's only one question, and uh, asking it is the answer. I don't. Know, I can't make anything. With that. <laughs> I think
0: it's one of those Zen koans. <laughs> It's one of those things that we're not supposed to figure out. Uh, It doesn't have to make rational sense. It speaks to um, an inner wisdom that the mind doesn't necessarily understand. Freedom, true freedom, ultimate freedom, is beyond the mind. The mind cannot grasp it. We can't figure it out. You know, um, I think that's partly why the the Eightfold Path is considered, the path to follow, but it's not a guarantee to freedom. There is no guarantee of freedom. We do the practice, um, and we trust, and it's kind of like letting go. you know it happens. We can't will it. <laughs> we can't make it happen um, The first one, that which we are seeking, is causing us to seek. Throws us back, I think, on ourselves. So that instead of seeking something out there or looking for an answer or um, something from out here, it throws us back to look at what is this that is seeking? What is this that is causing us to seek? What is this longing? And and suggest that that's the more
1: important question. So you just look at it. I mean, examine examine your... Hold it.
0: Live it. Mary Orr always talks about living the question. And I, I love that, that idea that we don't have to have an answer or the answer isn't going to come from up here. Uh, we just live the question and <laughs> and live the answer <laughs> likewise with freedom um, we live our freedom again it's not something that we that we grasp or hold on to um, we live it um, we let go of being somebody or something and just be. And it's a reminder that words only point us. You know, words cannot adequately describe um, I think all of us have some idea, we've all had the experience of just being, and probably experienced the freedom, the spaciousness, the, um, the wonder of just being. And then the ego comes in very quickly, <laughs> and, and we constrict again, right? And then there's all these ideas and all these thoughts about I got to do this and I got to do that. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho in his book talks about, Um, growing up very driven and how, you know, he had to do this and he had to do that and he always thought he wasn't doing enough and he had to do more and, you know, this drivenness that I'm sure many, if not all of us, can relate to. And recognizing that that's not it, (laughs) you know. There's nothing more to do. Um, In fact, the idea is to stop. Just stop and be. Um, there's a, uh, a teacher some of you may be uh, familiar with, Gangaji, that I used to <clears throat> visit quite often. And she loved to tell the story of when she went to India and met her teacher, Poonjaji or Papaji. And he would say to her, stop. And she'd say, Yeah. Okay. Got it. Right. Now what? (laughs) And he'd say, just stop. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I got it. Okay. Now what? (laughs) And it would go on and on, you know, and and he would just say, just stop. And, of course, finally, she got it. She just stopped.
1: Yeah. I think it was sometime um, on Monday night during the last year. I <coughs> gave a whole talk on this question of what is the question. Hmm. And uh, to condense a whole evening's talk into like that, um, the. the uh, example he gave uh, was of a young man who wanted to enter a monastery, <coughs> and he went to the Zen ma- to the master, and uh, he said, and so the master said, the master said, uh, why do you want to enter the monastery? And he said, uh, I want to answer the question of who I am, and he's and the. He was turned away. said, no, that's not the question. Go away and think about what is the question. And, you know, he kept coming back and coming back, uh, thinking he had the right question, and he kept getting turned away. And finally he wandered through the whole world asking people what they thought the question was. And he spent about a very, very long time doing this. And one day he bumped into the old master and said well i thought you'd come back where have you been he said well i've just been wandering through the world asking everybody what what is the question and then he said now you can come back and he said "Oh, now i don't need to
3: (laughs) many paths to enlightenment (laughs)
2: Behind. well, that's interesting, you say many paths to enlightenment because i'm sitting here thinking, I always hear this talk about you know let go and just be and all that and and it's true in a way, but I think about my own experience, my own journey so far, and prior to getting a sense of of self it was I think it would have been impossible for me to really let go, and there was something about getting a sense of self and, I, and I'm studying psychology and I've read about this but um, and I don't know that it's everybody's path but sometimes <laughs> it seems like first getting that sense to let go of is really important because the, the emptiness I felt before was just such a driver so maybe you have something to say about that <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yes, it's it's a debatable concept. Um, I'm trying to think of the man at Harvard that I first heard say that. Do you remember? Um, I can picture him. Well, anyway, a very well-known psychologist and longtime Vipassana teacher, or practitioner, teacher, who said, you have to first have a self before you can let go of it. Since that time he has recanted. (laughs) 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 Said, well, maybe I spoke too fast. (laughs) Um, So I don't know, far be it from me to, you know, question him. Um, I do know what you mean. And maybe it is, as you say, that there are different paths. And that for some people, developing um, an ego strength is very important, and for other people, letting go. Uh, Just a word from my own experience, in a way it's been both. Um, I would have thought many years ago that I didn't have much ego strength, because I had a lot of self-doubt, for many years, a lot of self-doubt. However, what I have discovered is there can be a heck of a lot of ego strength (laughs) in insecurity or in self-doubt. And that's certainly what I discovered, that there was a very, very strong sense of self that was caught up in self-doubt. So, um, you know, it's it's been a dance of course but that has been quite surprising i would venture to say that although it might not have looked like it my ego was probably more entangled and stronger than somebody who outwardly looked very you know maybe even arrogant that's that's the uh, workings of the of the ego so I don't know. Certainly um, someone with a mental illness, um, you know, we'd be very careful about teaching of letting go. Um, Often people with great mental difficulties aren't drawn to meditation or to Vipassana, which is helpful. Someone with a, a mental illness, um, someone who was not in touch with reality, uh, we would not be teaching about letting go. That probably would not be the appropriate teaching at that point. That, that could create more difficulty than, than help. And that's, that's something that the Buddha was very wise and very skillful with he taught to his audience so he was very aware very intuitive and um, and taught in ways that were appropriate for that group of people and I think that's something for us all to be aware of that and and to remember as listeners that it's important to take what fits and let go of what doesn't Because we all learn in different ways, we all hear things differently. Um, We all learn from different teachers. That's why Gil believes very much in having a variety of teachers come. Because we all hear differently, and we can hear differently at different times, depending on where we are at that particular time. So the skill to say what's appropriate for a particular group is, is a wonderful skill. Does that help? <laughs> no, there's a
2: second statement from that, was that possible that helps
1: those people. And I didn't see, sorry.
0: That, to, to me,
3: I, I am letting go when I'm sitting. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand how they can be different. You said the sitting was usually good for people who are mentally ill.
0: Oh, I said people who are mentally ill are often not drawn to meditation. And I said that's probably good. Meditation is often not recommended for people with mental illness. It, 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 um, It can be destructive rather than helpful. You look puzzled.
3: (laughs) I'm wondering what happens when they sit. What happens in their minds?
0: It, it of course, depends. It depends. Um, But, you know, all of us know that when we sit and meditate for any length of time, and over time, that um, a lot of things can come up that are difficult for us to handle. And so, for someone who's already struggling with mental difficulties, it can be overwhelming. It can be just too much. And as it can be for any of us at any time that we're pretty overwhelmed with whatever's going on. There are times when for any of us in a crisis or whatever, sitting meditation is not the best thing to do. Maybe walking, maybe doing something else.
3: Movement, perhaps. Some good mm-hmm. of movement. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: In your talk, you stress the freedom from side, the, the freedom from being bound up in yourself. But it seems to me letting go also gives you freedom too it allows you to act in a, in a different way than the way you would have acted if you're bound up in yourself. Mm-hmm. And that that action is a very important part of freedom.
3: Yes, it is.
0: Yes, that action can express freedom.
3: For me, um, I, I, there were a lot of gems tonight in what you said, I'm just hoping that I can listen to it again. <laughs> but one of the things that was really important, again, personally, was when you said letting it go happens, that you cannot really let go, because of course. I had I had struggled with that a lot. and I, I, always asked, how do I let it go? How do I let go? And, and, and when you said what you said, it really resonated. <laughs> Thank you for, for that, and for many other things Good. you said. Good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that just puts more emphasis on the noticing, the mindfulness, the paying attention. because. I keep seeing it over and over. Um, when we see something, see where we're holding, where we're caught, what we're doing, when we see it over and over and over again, eventually it does let go, it does relax. And that's, that's the power of mindfulness, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's why sometimes it's said that, that um, awareness or mindfulness in and of itself is curative. I don't know that that's always true, but it is so powerful when we just see something without the judgment, when we can drop the judgment and just see, oh, there I did it again. Oh, there I did it again. Oh, there I did it again. Eventually, it relaxes. So it's
3: empowering.
0: It's empowering. It is. And and it's a relief, you know. We don't have to struggle. I don't have to let go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I just see it, see it, see it.
3: Because it used to cause me more pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. How did I let go? How did I let go?
0: Well, it's a few minutes after nine, so I think we probably should stop. So I'll end with just suggesting that any merit that we may have accumulated tonight um, in our practice here together be given for the benefit of all beings everywhere, that all beings may know and experience the joy of freedom.